All right, well, let's get started. Do we have that opening slide? Amazing, because I forgot my title. Okay, <laughs> the, we're in a series on prayer. So we've, we've started the year, uh, it was a six-week series, and it might still be, we'll, we'll see, but the idea was we're, we're hunkering down on the Lord's Prayer out of Matthew 6, and we're, we're, we're delving into the tools of prayer that, that, that I really feel that that prayer gives us as believers. At the same time, we're, we're trying to be sensitive as we hone in on a, on a six-week prayer challenge, just fostering the lifestyle of prayer. We, we want to be sensitive to, to other dynamics. Last week, Cameron gave this amazing, uh, it, I really feel like it was, it, was, it was taking our eyes off of ourselves and it was looking on the Moravians in this, in this little group of at most 300 people at one time in Germany that literally shifted nations. They shifted nations, 300 people. And, and there was something about the, the lifestyle of prayer that, that was the foundation of their life. And we want to be sensitive as we go through this series that we're, we're processing kind of those elements of who are we as a people? How are we, how are we looking both at the practical elements of just practical prayer, looking at how Jesus taught his disciples, but then how are we also drawing from revivals, drawing from the saints of old, drawing from those who have gone before us? Uh, and today, the, the next two elements, because I'm trying to keep them within kind of a six-week thing. We were going through um, six elements in the Lord's Prayer. The first being adoration, kind of like, oh, Father, I adore you. And, and then petition. And then the, the weeks three and four were intercession and perseverance. So I was, I'm kind of trying to, to glean from both of those elements, intercession and, and perseverance. Did I say petition again? In, it was adoration, petition, intercession, perseverance, and in the last two weeks are listening and warfare. So today, I'm not going to go into detail on, on intercession and perseverance. I do want to point out, though, that the, the concept of, of intercession is this. If petition is asking God for what we need, intercession is asking God on behalf of what others need. Very simple definition. Intervening or mediating between two parties, the go-between. That's what intercession is. At the same time, perseverance is, is something where what do we do when we don't get immediate breakthrough? What do we do when we don't get immediate breakthrough? Perseverance is a big deal. It's a big deal. And, and, in, and in the life of the believer, Jesus didn't shy away from that. I think I touched on a couple weeks ago this concept of, of the Bible almost highlights what to do um, with this concept of you coming to the Lord with this question, and the Bible is not afraid of that question. At the same time, We were not designed to be a people that live with unanswered prayer. It's not our nature. We have to live in a tension where prayer is something that we don't shy away from the lack of answers. We're raw, we're vulnerable, we're real. The world around us does not need to see a church that's pretending like everything's okay on the outside while we're like literally licking our wounds and desperately hoping our church family heals us enough so that we can go out and put on this bright face and pretend like everything's okay when it's not. The world doesn't need that. In fact, they already know that's not the case, and that's why we've lost a lot of respect. So what they actually need is for you to show them your process of what you do when you are aching for answers and you're not getting them. That's what they need you to do. And here's the, the mind-blowing thing that I continually come back to, is that Jesus never gave his disciples a subject 
of what to do with unanswered prayer. Not one time. Just think for a moment. Try to think of all the things that Jesus, okay, links all through the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Where did Jesus bring up the topic of what to do with unanswered prayer? Not one time. Not one time does he bring that up. The disciples bring it up. Like, Jesus, like, uh, we prayed for this young kid. He couldn't, didn't get healed. And then Jesus brings them back. And he does give them an answer. The answer is to go pray and fast. Come back into the place of the presence of God that you were designed to live in. And then he immediately goes and gives the breakthrough that they were seeking. Uh, in, in other words, this was not a, like, here's what you do when you don't get breakthrough here. Here's your unanswered prayer. And this one's okay. More or less, he said, it's not okay. At other times, they prayed for things they also didn't get. Like, can we call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans? <laughs> he also answered them. Notice, that wasn't an unanswered prayer. It was, you're idiots. That was his answer. If you go back to the, the Greek literally says, morons. But, it's not our passage for the day, but, but I'm, I, it is true. Like, he does address them. He, he, unanswered prayer, stupid questions. They're kind of all in the same realm, and sometimes we don't know how to discern between the two. But what I do want to say today is that (laughs) uh, what you do with your lack of answers says a lot about your relationship with the Lord. And he he is posturing himself to meet you in the midst of your unanswered questions. So interceding and perseverance are a massive ordeal. I want to talk a bit about intercession today, but more from the position of how do we intercede for those that are far from God. Because if you're, you're like me, I've lived my whole life. I, I, my, my parents are the first Christians in their family. They became believers when I was three. I became a born-again, professing lover and follower of Jesus when I was four. I don't say that I have another like experience in middle school or high school because I remember every moment. I remember what happened as a four-year-old. I remember my thought process, my prayer. I, I remember everything. So I'm like, totally pointless for me to pretend like I had another experience that made me a follower of Jesus. I had many other experiences that, that exposed things and lifted me up and completely blew my mind, but my, my, my encounter with Jesus, where I started my relationship with him, was at four, year old, four years old. And ever since that time, I can say I've lived with this tension of realizing that there were people everywhere that didn't have this relationship with Jesus that I had. That's pretty normal, right? We live with that tension every day of our lives. Uh, if you're like me, I feel like I'm going to do a lot of show of hands today, so just roll with it, okay? <laughs> feel the Spirit of God on the show of hands. If you're like me, show of hands, uh, have, have, have you ever just kind of tried to numb yourself towards that reality because it's so painful? I have to numb myself constantly. Thank you. Show of hands. Who's numbed the pain at some point? Like, it's almost too much to, to deal with every day. Right? You can't get up. Like, th- Jesus never says, okay, and pray like this. Rise in the morning. Look across the land. See all these people going to hell. <laughs> Sip the morning, Joe. Just let it all just start your day. Go get them, tiger. That was not how Jesus taught us to pray. Like, I, I, and, and while I've never prayed the go get him tiger prayer, I, I have 
I have kind of walked my life out in such a way that kind of resembles that. I've, I've been a part of movements and, and, and things in college where like the, the overarching uh, mentality of what we were doing with our life was to go after and seek the lost. And as noble as a heart as that is, it was not sustainable for my loving, tender heart to walk in that tension of carrying that heavy load with me all the time. And, and the worst part was is I had really horrible results, really, really bad results. And I wasn't, I wasn't one of those you know, guys that were standing on you know, things in street corners with megaphones or whatever else. Uh, I, I feel like I had a somewhat healthy upbringing and, and, and healthy desire and people around me and people trying to disciple me into loving people into the kingdom and all that good stuff. But, but it really is a tension in our lives, right? Every day of our life, we have to come into this reality that we live in this tension that we have this love relationship with Jesus and there's all these people that we want him to experience, that we want, to experience, we want them to experience the same thing that we have, right? Okay, so what do we do with that? That's a great question, great question. I'm not going to make you show your hands for another few minutes, I promise, uh, but I am going to move aside with that. Here's what, I, here's what I do want to do to tie together a little bit of last week from this week. Um, <clears throat> Lana Marie sent this little word to Sue and I, uh, actually to Sue, Sue forwarded it to me. And during, was it pre-service prayer or some point last week before the message, she got this picture of a strawberry field. And uh, uh, she just sent this word really simply, that, that I got this picture of the strawberry field, and then I just looked up the significance of, of strawberry and field, very simple. Um, strawberries, they, they signify romance, love, friendship, good fruit, and they even uh, represent temptation as well. And then the fields. Fields represent the world. They represent true believers, the harvest, and the church. So, so what's, what's the interpretation of, of, of seeing that image? Uh, simply loving people, loving others. Going into the field to pick the fruit, to share that love, to share Christ's love, and loving on people. Cameron's message was how this little group of persecuted people birthed a global harvest. But it began with simple prayer. And these prayers, I feel like, are, are to change us to be lovers. We get that. I think we all theologically get that and can say amen to that. Show of hands? Amen. Okay. <laughs> but do we live with that conviction every day of our life? When, when you live from the place of love, love, love can be every human being created in God's image, which is every human being on earth, pre or post Jesus. They're created to love. They feel love. They can give love. They can have it abused. And yet we were, we were given this opportunity to introduce them to the creator of love. They were created and designed to connect with the Father that put love in them. That's a super amazing, simple, beautiful task and assignment. And I think the church has just overthought it, overcomplicated it, and stressed out way too much about this. And, and instead of this being the greatest joy, privilege, and act of our life, it's become the most anxiety-ridden burden that I've ever experienced in my life. Ever. It's heavy, isn't it? How many of you, show of hands, 
I told you. Every holiday, it's, it's, it, it can be a multiple things with the family, but one of them is you're reminded again of that heavy burden you have for that loved one, right? That's okay too, but it's, not, it's, it's, it's because there still is something in us that, that it's not okay, and yet it's also not okay for us to live completely oppressed by this weight. And I just, I just say, let's covenant with each other that this is not going to be a heavy weight. This is going to be the joy of our life. To see those that we love the most encounter the love of Jesus. We were created for this. This is so normal. This is not difficult. This is not hard. I think the thing that's hard is that the church typically does not do this together. We do not do this in family. We do this isolated, alone, in the most difficult circumstances ever. Like... Who's ever gone and knocked on doors? Yeah. See, I didn't ask for a show of hands, but now you're giving them. This is amazing. <laughs> I've done it a few times. I've hated every moment of it. <laughs> I've, had some, I've had a couple of good experiences. Uh, even going into the streets, it's not really knocking on doors, but, but when I go into the streets and, and just love on people, I dread that even when I have an amazing day. We had, a, we had a great time in, in Brazil on a missions trip where it was, it was mostly activities during the evening, but during the day, you know, we didn't have anything to do, so we just went out with uh, the people we were on the trip with, and we just were looking for people. We had translators, which was amazing, and uh, so these translators were all filled with the joy of the Lord and the Holy Spirit, so they would just kind of like lure us on and start talking to people that I'd be forced to, to pray for and interact with. So there was this... Um, this one jolly man, we found out he was exactly uh, Sue and I's age, and he even had like kids the same exact age at the time. I think we had both our boys then. And, and he could barely speak any English, but his Portuguese was great, and he knew that we were praying for people. So he would just lead us to people after another. So we, we started one afternoon, and, and I think we started with um, the, the first guy we prayed for is, uh, was a guy with no legs. Yeah, I'm like, okay, could we start with just maybe something slightly easier than no legs? The pray your legs grow out. First prayer, thank you for sending me to the nations, Lord, and letting me pray for these people on the street. Let's start with, uh, oh, the guy there that looks like he wants to die with no legs. That's where we started. I had zero faith when we walked up. And something about being with other believers, it was, it was just incredible how, how our communal dynamic shifted his countenance he literally started, the legs, the legs did not grow out, okay. He starts feeling heat on his legs and starts telling them in Portuguese. His entire face changes. He starts smiling, laughing, and touching people. And by the end, it's, it's like we're taking pictures together and we're just blessing him, encouraging him, and everything else, right? So, so we didn't get the miracle we were praying for. What we did do is we loved on a man who no one else had the courage to love on, and we touched him. We went, and then, and then our, our Portuguese friend led us to the next guy, and the next little group was a, was a group of, um, uh, they were kind of like palm reader types. And I don't actually think they were Brazilian. They were another group. And um, by the end, we were, we were literally, uh, we were prophesying over them. We did, we did a reverse palm reading type of thing. And they were so amazed that we were starting to kind of process them through deliverance and all these different things. And they were, they were literally renouncing their association with different spirits and whatever else. We were filling them with the Holy Spirit and with the person of Jesus. And... 
And, and they, were, they were literally receiving Jesus there on the spot. And, and, and then we were praying for healing for all of them. And then they would go get their friends, and they were getting healed. It was beautiful. Then, you know, before we were finished there, our, our Portuguese friend was saying, well, there's, you know, there's, we only need a couple people to that. So he, he moves on to the man with leprosy, I think. It, was, it looked like leprosy all over his body, sitting in rags over, like, you know, down the block. I'm not making this up. This is all in, like, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And, and so, so by the end of like this little outing, I've got my hands on this guy that I had no... Pr- I, by the way, I didn't have faith for any people we were starting to walk up to. It was all these other people that were just really encouraged by this group that had come from all the different nations uh, for, the, for these uh, outreaches and stuff. So, so by the end, I, I'm praying over this guy with leprosy-ish stuff all over his body, pussing out nasty stuff. And, and all I could think about when I was not touching him was I should be touching him. And so I did. And then, and then uh, from everything I could see, I led him to Jesus. And it was beautiful. And in the middle of that, some random woman comes up and starts like, like praying over all of us. Like that this was, and, and she didn't speak English, but through an interpreter saying is that this is the stuff that's going to change this nation. And oh, this, we had this amazing encounter and people are crying and and more people are getting healed, and it was just like utter glorious, like Bible stuff chaos. And uh, and so I didn't want to go out, and we did, and it was amazing. I can't say that every day in my life has been like that, or every outreach has been like that. And and I think sometimes those of us that have had those kind of experiences, who could be calling me during church? Uh, sometimes we have these experiences and, and we, we and encounter and healings and signs and wonders and miracles and salvations and people being touched and all this and we go, that's evangelism. That's what that has to look like every day of our life. Me, me getting the boldness because someone else drew me over to a guy with the most disgusting stuff all over his body is, is not going to get my coworker to have the depth of conversation and encounter that he needs to address the hurts he has towards the church. Will it? Doesn't do, any, doesn't do that guy any good. I could come back and rattle off all the cool stuff that happened in Brazil on my missions trip. And, and, uh, and, and, and hipster George sitting next to me at my marketing uh, team is not going to do a thing. Uh, he's not going to care. Not going to care. And, and what did I say? Is it, is it, you have a guy named George that's next to you on your marketing team? No, it was just, okay. <laughs> so, so anyway, the, the, the point is what? Is that there has to be something better for the church to touch the people around us. And can we do that without putting aside the signs, wonders, miracles, and the lifestyle that Jesus invited his disciples into? Because that is supposed to be normal too. It's supposed to be just as normal for us to, to, to have a method of drawing people into the family. When the New Testament church is talking about people's handkerchiefs being sent out and shadows and all these things, they were also saying that continually they were meeting in homes and the, and the church grew in exponential number and all had this holy awe and fear over the followers of, of this Jesus. And daily many were added to their number. They were being added to the number through the family. And I have this word that the Lord just put on my heart is that can we become the type of family that the lost would become a part of this family before they even meet Jesus? Why do they have to, why do they have to pray a prayer 
of salvation to go to heaven when they die before they can become a part of our family. I mean, we, none of us believe that that has to be the case, and yet we've set everything up that that kind of feels like they have, for them to come to church, they have to kind of be ready to say a prayer at the end or they're not going to come back next week. That's kind of how we set everything up, right? And so I think there's a better way. I think there's a better way. I have no idea where I'm at with my notes, um, and I need to keep moving because I, I want us to go somewhere with this. So little bit of a little bit of a history lesson with evangelism in this nation. Um, we've, we've had a great time, a few of us... Uh, Show of hands, came to, to Santa Monica a few months ago and did some alpha training. I see a handful, yes. So there's this uh, connection. We had friends from the UK. Alpha is, is, uh, is this uh, series of essentially dinner parties where, where people can be invited in, um, not on a Sunday morning, to explore the deepest questions of faith. It's, it's both for the church and it's for those outside the church. And I'll describe it even in more detail in a few minutes. But the point is, is that uh, we've gotten exposed to it. Many of you I know have taken some realm of it in the past. But Sue and I got, got really kind of like jolted and, and our eyes opened a few years back by some friends that were, were doing this at like a whole different kind of level, where the culture of their body was embracing this. There's been two things that I would equate this to in the life of my like just Christendom that, that, that has kind of blown my mind and been kind of game changers, and this is a practical way to, to train people in the life of the church. The first has been Israel. And, and I, you know, from the moment I remember hearing of Israel, I've heard people go to Israel and blah, 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 and I've done a lot of traveling in my life, at least I think I have, and all of a sudden I was just kind of like, ah, do I want to go to Israel? Sure, but I'd rather go see something else than to go on a tour. I just wasn't interested in tour, like, I mean, I can read about it. I don't really need to see the stuff. If it happens, eh. and then and then there was this there was this uh, guy I met who just completely changed my perspective on the significance of experiencing the Holy Land. And Sue and I have been three times since then. And it's not just about going; it's about teaching people and inspiring people to go, and even before they go, to see Hebrew and to think Hebrew and to and to literally take on a Jewish mindset. When you do that, you will never see the word of God the same, ever, ever. And it is way better if you can go there and smell it, feel it, taste it. Second thing has been Alpha. And many people have done Alpha in many different ways, shapes, and forms, and I've seen little tidbits of it here and there. And I've done an Alpha marriage course before, not to like the kind of the full thing of the, of the regular course, and my experience was always like, oh, cool, yeah, whatever. Not inspired at all. And probably because a lot of them aren't inspired. All of a sudden, I saw something with a bit of, of just the touch of God on it and the life of a body around it. And we were like... And what hit me was that this isn't the answer for all of evangelism in the life of the church. It's not. But this is, I believe a gift to the body, to incorporate a culture of inviting those far from God into a family that speaks the language of our society and empowers the body to be the church, separated from this concept of the four church walls. That's my conviction. And our heart isn't that this little little seven-week thing is going to completely revolutionize it. This is the start of a process where we are inviting 
you as a body into helping us build a culture that fosters a constant flow of how are we connecting with the world around us and bringing them into a place that's appropriately set up, not for us to preach, but for us to listen, them the process, and for us to build a relationship over the deepest questions that every human being that's been created in God's image can wrestle with in a safe place, in a fun place, in an attractive place, in a place they want to come back to, in a place they want to build friends with before they have to agree with the friends. That's all it is. And so here's a little bit of a, of a history lesson. Um, Gare Jones down in Santa Monica has, uh, has, has been really helpful in some of the I love some of the stats he gives because they're brief and they're helpful. Um, but one of the things I like that he shares that, is that <clears throat> in the 50s and 60s, what was our mode of evangelism, in, at least in America? Our mode of evangelism was, was, was like a Billy Graham thing or, or we just hit the streets and we give people that word of like, do you know where you're going to go if you die today? Many of you, if you grew up in the Bible, but like I did, that was still the mode <laughs> uh, when I was a child. And when we went out, it's like, here's all the questions you can ask, and I guarantee they're all going to just want to drop to their knees if you just walk up to a stranger and say, do you know where you're going to go today if uh, you died? Or if you turn to the person that you're sitting next to on the plane, you know, this plane goes down. What was your name? Uh, so the, it's not actually to poo-poo on that, that methodology. The reality is, was in the 50s and 60s, the vast majority of America was pretty Christian. Like, we were very Christianized, meaning that, like, if you, if you went to almost anyone on the street or you met them, they had had some kind of church background. And, and, if, and, and, and they, weren't, they weren't kind of angry at the church. The church was still kind of like the moral code of the law of the land. And so they needed sometimes a bit of conviction, or at least it worked to a certain degree to just throw out a convicting something. And they're like, you're right. And, and it worked a lot. Look at Billy Graham. And he built an entire amazing ministry. It morphed a little bit over time, and, but, and, but, but amazing reality was it's like you just throw the line of conviction out in love to the people, and by the droves, they just like come, right? So that was the, a lot of the 50s and 60s. I, I mean, this isn't like a hard, fast rule, but just to give you an idea, maybe to put some things in perspective. In the 80s, that didn't work quite as well. The 80s and 90s. 80s and 90s, it was more about this, this concept of like, okay, conviction's not really working. I need to see some evidence that you Christians know what you're talking about. So you got all these people that might have had like some familiarity with the church, and all of a sudden they need to see some evidence. So you got, you know, like the evidence that demands a verdict, and anyone, show of hands, uh, book. I mean, that, that was my, my college bookshop was a bunch of evidence books to prove that, that Christianity was real. I wasn't a jerk, but like I would get into these long, 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 long talks with, with my buddies uh, about things, and I don't know if it did any good, but I do know for a lot of people, it did do a lot of good, and there was this element of like, let's actually show the evidence of where that is, and, and so that was kind of the, the mode of evangelism. And then, and then in the 2010s and on, I think there's been kind of like a, a shift that we start to realize that, um, and here's what, here's what we're dealing with. We have 53% of the nation is not really... Christian even in familial traits at all, 53%. People want to discover truth for themselves, and what matters to them most is their own personal experience. Experience. And I think a lot of the church has kind of tried to reject that, going, it's not about an experience, it's about the truth of God's word. It is about the truth of God's word, and the truth of God's word, if you receive it, will give you this amazing experience in relationship with Jesus. 
uh, it's okay to understand that the culture is looking to experience something, but, but what they need is authenticity. They need our authentic encounter with the living God. So let's stop trying to change their question. They get to be the ones to build the questions. And society is asking, give me an experience. I need to experience this God that you claim, this mythological mindset that you claim to live in. And, and here's the other thing. We, we, we have this reality now that Christians are not the moral code anymore, especially in California. The, the, if, you, if, if, you have, if you have someone, maybe someone you go to work with or whatever else, many, many, many people view Christians not as the moral code, but as like the anti-moral code. Like they're almost kind of got like an evil agenda, right? So what it used to be is like, yeah, I'm not, I don't believe in any of that bull, but, you know, the Christians are at least like, you know, they're good people, they do a lot of good, they're morally sound, it's like I'd send my kid to the Christian school, you know, and whatever else. Nowadays, if I could afford it, nowadays, uh, it's, it's, a little, it's a little different. It's, it's, these are the bigots, the racists, and, and any other negative t- term down the line. That's what the Christian bubble is viewed at by a large, not all, but by a large percentage of the population. It's true. Whether it's your personal experience or not, like even the stats are starting to show this is, is absolutely where we're at. So I think we, we need to understand that the vast majority of our country <laughs> has, uh, has had some kind of mindset towards Jesus. But here's, here's the really encouraging thing. 48% say that they're post-Christian. 45% say that they're completely unchurched. 55% of Christians believe getting to heaven is about good works. 55% of Christians. This is what that equates to. You include those 55% of Christians that think that heaven is about getting there because of good works, and you, and you look at the rest of that population that's completely unchurched or post-Christian, that leaves 75% of the American population needs to hear the good news. That's, re- that's really encouraging. And that would explain a lot, wouldn't it? 75% of our population doesn't understand what the good news is. They don't understand it. They, they have an image of Jesus. And so here's the thing is, is that even what we see in the New Testament, we see people going out and all they have to do to a degree is be filled with the Spirit and they, and they go... They would go into a city and they go, have you heard about the man Jesus? And they go, no, who is this? And they're, they're curious to understand. We have, in many ways, a harder job. Because if you walk into work and go, hey, anyone that wants to hear about Jesus, I'm going to buy some sandwiches and we're going to talk over lunch and we're going to get you all converted. That will work never, ever, anywhere. <laughs> and, and if it works at your office, I'm coming and I have to see this with my own eyes. So let me know. I'll be there any day. And so... The, the reality is, is that we have to look at things in a much different light and take in the reality that people have presuppositions and we have to do something to address those presuppositions. We have to do something to address their negative experiences. And so that's, that's what we're inviting us into as a family, to address those negative experiences. And then I think we do this. We, we believe that our, our mode, and, and again, you can do one more show of hands. I have taken on this kind of mode where, where I kind of pray for people in my quiet place, my, my family members, my, my, I'm in a, 
I'm in a really annoying state of mind or place right now where I'm like work from home. I don't even take the train like I used to in Chicago and see people everywhere. I'm like, I take my five second step from my kitchen to my back office and I see nobody. See my excuses why I can't reach the lost? No. But, but, but the, the point is, is I have to be more intentional to interact with people outside the church. And, and so the point, though, is that we, we then, my posture has often been like, pray for them, but I'm not sure where to take things to another level, where to initiate. And, and, and here's the thing, prayer by itself, without doing anything, is really significant and really powerful. Um, to give you a few examples, uh, I think we've probably bored a lot of you to death with all of our family, like, amazing uh, stories with brother-in-law Daniel, who we prayed for for years. And all honestly, I, we prayed for a long time, and we would still kind of pray, but it wasn't like I was on my knees, like, every day, begging God for a salvation. But all of a sudden, Daniel encounters Jesus, and it's just, it's just like it just completely turns the family upside down. And, and then he actually turns in to what I would say, modern-day evangelist. Now, I, how many of you would consider yourself one of your main giftings is evangelism? One? That's about two-ish. Three half-hearted, good. There's a couple more. Okay, so not a whole... That's pretty standard for the church, where it's like my main gift isn't like evangelism. Why? Because if it was, you probably would be out there. That's how evangelists think oftentimes right? Kind of. I mean, they're, they're to a certain degree. And, and so uh, my, my brother-in-law, Daniel, I really believe like he's, he's gifted spiritually with this. Now, whenever I say that, I have to be really careful because I cannot stand any time a Christian goes like, oh, well, that's because they have the gift of evangelism. Then that, means, that gives me no responsibility to do anything that they do. They have the gift. I'm more like discipleship teaching, you know, loving on people. So there you got the gift of evangelism. Doesn't mean I never share, you know, like if, if someone like has a dream that they're supposed to have a conversation with me and they come up to me and say, can you tell me about Jesus? I mean, I'll tell them about Jesus then. But I thought I'd give an extreme example because that's like a little over the top. I'm trying not to like offend anyone. Myself is included in that. But I, I just want to be clear is that what we're not talking about is, is this reality that like, okay, the evangelists do all the work and we don't have to do anything. That's not true. But the reality is, I think it's not helpful for me when you, uh, when you go hear an evangelist talk about like their lifestyle. Any of you know Todd White? Todd White is amazing. I love him to death. I, I think I've, I've, told this, I've told this many times at some little points, but I had this, when we were in Chicago, I had this, this struggle where, where I was like so frustrated with my, with my life and I was feeling so like burdened by the fact that I'm not walking like in power and authority and signs and wonders every single day. And I felt like part, I think it was just, I knew it was all paid for by, by the cross and that there was, I had experienced all this stuff, that is, but it, like my day-to-day life wasn't like resonating with it and I wanted to see more and I'm like, God, I, I need someone to just jolt me, shake me and, and disciple me like crazy. And I just don't think there's anyone in Chicago that can do that. So like, God, can you like get like a Todd White or somebody to have, like, I have intimate access to him? I kid you not, a month later, I have a guy in our church named Mark Nelson. He's from South Africa. And he calls me up and goes, 
uh, I think he texted me, and he said something like, Christian, you know this guy, uh, uh, Todd White? I'm like, mm, yes. And he goes, I never heard of him, but he's, uh, he's on his way apparently to my, to my mate's church in, in Australia, and he's got an all-day layover in Chicago. You want to hang out with him? And I'm like, yes, where is he going to be? What terminal? I'll be there. So at the time, I think we had Finn, and that was it. So Sue and I, I just like, didn't go into work. And, and we just went to the airport. And I didn't know if we were just going to have like a brief interaction with him and, and, or we were going to actually spend all day together. The, the guy's crazy. He's got dreadlocks. He wears these stupid shoes where you can see his toes pop out of them. And he has these floral shirts from I don't know where. And then he wears these kind of like MC Hammer pants. And, and then he literally cannot see another human being without stopping them and saying something about Jesus to them or prophesying or healing or whatever. Cannot. So, of course, we finally, like, we're, at, we're, in, we're in O'Hare Airport, like, 50 feet from the door like, by a Starbucks, and we see him, and, and again, like, he treats me like, like, like a lost person. Like, he comes up and tries to, like, pray for my back, and then gives his testimony to me. Like, he knows who I am now. We've been texting for five minutes like, about this, and I'm like, yeah, but I've heard your testimony, like, 50 times, I, I, but thank you. That was awesome, and no, I don't have any back pain, but thank you for trying, and, uh, and I'm like, well, maybe I do have back pain. Anyway, we, we, can't leave, we can't leave the airport. It takes like an hour to leave the airport because the guy has to pray for 27 people. Uh, and I'm not kidding. We're like in the parking garage. There's no people, no people. And there's one guy like 200 yards away in this massive parking garage, and he makes me pull over the car with this guy that's pushing a trash can so he can go pray for him. And it happens that the guy only has one eye, and he's praying for his eye and blah, blah, blah. He's on the phone, by the way, with his, with his, with his wife talking about, like, the freezer that went out and, like, throw all the fish away. And then they pull the car over, pull the car over, and he's running down at this guy. And then, like, I think she's still on the phone the whole time, like, gets back in the car after praying for this guy. Like, we don't even have a chance to get out and join him. And we get back in the car, and then the only person left before we get on, like, I-294, where it's going to be impossible, we can actually interact with this guy. Is, is like the, the teller to pay for. And of course, like he's reaching over me because she's the one with the back pain, not me. And, and she's like, she's this awesome African-American woman and she's loving it. She's like, oh yeah, honey, you pray for my, yeah, oh, yes, Spirit of God, yes. Like this is, this was, this was like just trying, and I'm like, Do you, here's my money. So we, we, we get out and we're on, we're on the freeway, finally, finally. And, and, and then it was good. We got, we got to interact a bit, and, um, and we took him back to our house, and, and then I, I take him. It could be, it's an all-day story. We, I took him to Moody Bible Institute, and, um, and that was interesting because he wanted to work out at the gym. So, so, so anyway, this was really fun. We took him to Whole Foods for lunch, so we didn't talk at all. All he did was pray for people. Elevator. Every, hey, everybody. Jesus loves you. Super awkward. He was super awkward. I'll be real honest. He was super awkward all the time. But, but he blessed a lot of people that day. He weirded out a whole lot of people too. And at the end of the day, um, I still think he doesn't know my name. Um, he asked me right before, right before he had to get on the train, he asked me Sue's name so he'd make sure to like, like say bye to her. I'm like, you've been with us for 10 hours, man. Like we've name dropped 50 times. But here's the thing. He, is not, he, does not, he doesn't have a pastoral bone in his body. He could not care less, not, not in a negative way. Like, he is wired for the lost. He, he loved that, prayed for it. I mean, it was, it was great. But, like, his, he was not engaged at whatever was happening between us. He was focused on everybody else. 
And that drew a line in the sand for me. And I, I, it took me like another month to recover from that. Because I'm like, first I was like, yeah, maybe God, that wasn't, that's not, maybe that discipleship thing is not going to work, me and him. Um, <laughs> I still love him. I, if, if anyone tries to, to proclaim that he's like a fake, that's a lie. That guy is legit. And, 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 uh, and by the way, I, know, I didn't see a single miracle or word he did all day that I haven't done myself. Like, I, didn't, I didn't see like, like, uh, like legs growing out of a human being. Every, there, were, there were many different like, things like back pain and sinus infections and, and whatever else. And then, and then just people just sharing testimony and giving them love and prophetic words and all this stuff. All those things I have done many, many times in many different circles and whatever. So he didn't do, it was just the rate, the exhausted rate at which he did it. And I'm like, I don't think I could live like this. Like, I was literally feeling suffocated by the end of the day. And what I was doing was I was comparing myself to him. I was equating him with Jesus and saying that this is my standard. And Christian, if you're not there... Then, and, you can, and you don't see any faith you'll ever get there, then you just are never going to attain what like, your life's supposed to attain. That's dangerous. At the same time, I do believe he is, he, his, he's wired to also inspire the church to see what's possible. Right? And here's the thing. I had to come to terms with the fact that like, I, have a, I have some other gifts in my life that the Lord really loves. And he is wooing me into a lifestyle where the stuff that I saw is, is feasible. I want more Todd Whites on earth. But I think we also need to be okay if you're not Todd White. Like, how does the church live in that tension between honoring that gift? Because what a lot of people do is we try to say that it's wrong or that's not realistic or say something about, like, to, like, exit out so we feel a little bit better about ourselves. And here's what I'm, I want us to be a people of is to say, this is amazing, he's gifted, and there's people among us that are gifted that way too, and that this does remind us that we can live on another level, and that we can go out anywhere we're at, and we have free license to invade and touch people with the love and power of God. At the same time, he does not represent the entire body of Christ. When Jesus said, I gave to my church, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, I saw him doing nothing but evangelism all day, and that's amazing. He's walking in that. But the body needs the entire fivefold gifts of Jesus to operate in fullness. And we need to find ways. He did not have a conversation with, uh, with, with my neighbor. He did not have a conversation with my boss. He did not have a conversation with my cousin. He did not have a conversation with all the important people in my life that I pray for every day that I'm most burdened for. He did not get to, Todd White did not meet them. And if he did, he had about 10 seconds to do something or didn't do something and I still have a mission. And my mission doesn't have to always look like him, but it can sometimes. What does that look like? And I think Alpha is our answer as a body, or at least a step forward as we pursue this. What time is it? I need to wrap. Okay. So here's what I'm inviting us to. Can you put that, the, that Alpha slide up? And you can't really read that. I will read it to you. <laughs> and, and I just want to, I want to just bring this home and land here and pray over us. What is Alpha? It's a series, this is eight, we're actually only going to do seven sessions where we freely explore life, spirituality, and the foundations of the Christian faith in a fun, non-judgmental, safe place. 
Whether you're just checking it out, new to faith, exploring spirituality, or you want to make some new friends, you're invited. That's the simple dynamic of what we're doing. Next slide. Who is it for? It's for anyone who's curious. So we want the whole church at some point to do this. If you can't do it this go around, please try to mark your calendars for the fall. We're going to do it again in the fall. But we want everyone to at least come to the launch night and to mark your calendars for it. So the launch nights will be two times a year. The, the first one's on February 12th. The experience night is this Tuesday. Uh, and then the idea is that the evenings are designed to encourage conversation and explore life, spirituality, and the foundations of the faith. Um, I think that basically says the same thing I just read. Good. Next slide. How does it work? Again, food, short film, literally 18 to 20 minutes, that gives some kind of topic of faith to then lead into a conversation. And the conversation is not, all right, what did everyone think about Jesus? Are you ready to pray a prayer right now? It's actually the, the facilitators of the groups are set up so that everyone that already knows Jesus shuts up, and everyone that needs to process something is, is almost drawn out to talk. So we get good, solid conversationalists that know how to balance these two worlds to, to be facilitators in a group. And the idea is we're getting people to literally wrestle with and talk and be real. We want real life to happen in these groups. How many of you, if, if you, show of hands, if you, last one, if you knew that every Tuesday night for seven weeks that you're the people that you want to meet Jesus are going to gather together and talk about their deepest questions, what they're wrestling with with their faith. How many of you have time for that? <laughs> right? The issue is, if, it, if that doesn't happen, I don't have time for that. And that's true, because I'm kind of there too. I know you people. You're amazing. If you have these people show up, you have time for it. You will make time. Because this is the most important thing in all of your lives. You've been praying for these people your whole life. So as we start the momentum, this will become more and more natural. We won't be kind of like convincing people just to give it a go. But we also have to build a culture, right? What I want to promise you is that we're going to try really hard to build a culture that is, that is not going to weird your friends out. It's going to attract them to the church. And that if the only thing that they walk away with is that, like, I still disagree with you Christians on everything. But I don't hate you anymore. That's a huge win. We have to start seeing the people in our life not from, like, this side to this side. We have to start seeing this process of we are positioned in their life to introduce them to Jesus. And if they were here and you took them right here closer to his embrace, that's a massive win. And we have to start celebrating the process. And we need to start doing it together because many of you are like, I could not have one word come out of my mouth that would make sense when it comes to this. Fine. That's why the family's here. You just invite them to meet your friends. And you show up and you don't even have to talk. You can, you can just sip on your drink, eat a little food, and just hang out. And, and the idea is, is that you're praying the whole time and covering and you're interceding on their behalf. That's the whole point. And so, again, we, the other thing I want to make a covenant, some of you also see people in here going like, I, okay, Christian, like, you're super cool. And I know, like, I'm super cool. <laughs> and you would all entrust me as your pastor to have these conversations maybe with your, with, your, with your friends. Because after all, I mean, like, I was in a fraternity or something. <laughs> I have a feeling there's going to be a few jokes about that at some point. No. The, what we do look for, though, is 
is we're looking for people not that can like regurgitate a bunch of Christian information. So if you've got a, a Master's of Divinity like I do, you probably are disqualified from being a group facilitator unless you know how to shut your mouth. If you're super awkward in conversation, you're probably going to be disqualified from being a group leader. It's okay. Like Most of those people don't volunteer anyway. But the point is, is that you can still be a part of it. You can still be there. But we're literally strategizing the types of, of, of people that are fitting in the right places. And all we're asking you people to be is family. To come, interact, love, support, pray, eat, watch a film, and watch, watch God work. And let's build a culture where we can start seeing people that we love and pray for all the time start moving a step closer to the love of Jesus. Can we stand and pray into that for a moment?